All right, we are glad that you could join us and that you have tuned in to see our recorded message at Bunker Hill Community Church this morning. And we hope that you enjoyed the music. And we are looking forward to spending some time in God's Word this morning. Last week, my message was about God's love for us and how many different ways God demonstrated his love for us. And today, I just want to talk a little bit about our response to that love, our response to God's love. And we're going to go to the book of Malachi as we look at this, because I want to compare our response to God's love to Israel, because God showed his love to them in a very special way by picking them out and choosing them as his special people in the Old Testament. And they weren't stellar in their response. And so we have a lot to learn from them, a lot we can learn from them. But we're going to look at Malachi this morning. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses as we begin. And when we go to a book of the Bible, usually you start at the beginning. So we're going to go to Malachi 1 and start at verse 1. And it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Let's stop there. We're going to look at more, but we're going to take a minute and pray. And then we're going to see Israel's response to God's love and what ours should be. Did that stop? Let's take a minute and pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we thank you again that you are in control of all things. And we thank you for the goodness that you've shown to us in many different ways. Every day in our life, we see that you sustain us with food, with air, with water. You give us friends, you give us family, and you give us a church that we can worship together freely, which many people around the world don't have. And so we can trust you. We know we can trust you. And we know that you love us as you have demonstrated your love to us, especially through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today at this passage, I pray that you would just teach us to show the love back to you that you want us to, to have the right response to your love. But, Lord, open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us now. Pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, guide me, give me words to say that we might hear your truth, and know that we've heard from you that you might challenge us in our hearts and minds to think more like you want us to, to become the people that you want us to. We'll give you praise and glory and honor. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the book of Malachi, I want to give you just a, a quick background of this book. It's the last book in the, in the Old Testament, and it's written by a very kind of insignificant prophet, uh, God raised up Malachi in this time to give them this message of condemnation that God has for Israel. And basically, the book starts with this phrase, um, once you get past verse 1, verse 1 is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then this is what God says to Israel through the prophet. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. So God is establishing right away the fact of his love, that he has shown them his love in so many different ways. And this, at this time in their history, they've already been established in the promised land. They've gone through exile in Babylon and are brought back to the promised land to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. 
And so God has sustained them even through times of turmoil. God has showed his love to them and now has restored them to the land. And it didn't take long after they were back in the land of Israel to become idolatrous and corrupt. Exactly what had caused them to lose that blessing of God's promise in the first place. And so here we are at this time in their history, um, just before the close of the Old Testament, where Israel has, for the most part, abandoned God, gone their own way, and their their worship, they're still worshiping in the temple, they're still sacrificing, but it's it's just a performance. It's just the ritual that they go through. And it doesn't mean anything because their hearts are so turned away from God and so corrupt that God says, I don't accept this offering. I don't accept this sacrifice. And he says that a couple of times in this book. Now, we're not going to read the entire book, but I want to point out some things because God's condemnation of Israel here is very pointed. And he shows them, he basically says, you've done this. And then Israel's response to them is always, well, how have we done that? They're quick to defend themselves. And I think many times we find ourselves in that kind of situation where God may point something out in our lives, either through his word or through somebody else's admonition. And the first thing we think of is I have to defend myself. I have to explain it away. I have to make sure people understand that it's not me. I'm not at fault. And that's exactly what Israel was doing here. And so God asks these questions and says, you have done these things. And every time Israel comes back and says, well, how have we done that? How prove it to us? How have we done that? And so we start here in the very first part of the, the book. And he says in verse one or verse two, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hath thou loved us? So God is saying to Israel, I've loved you. I've demonstrated my love to you in so many different ways. And Israel's response is, yeah, you say you love us, but really, how have you shown us you loved us? From their perspective, they're looking at their current situation where they're in bondage. They're, they're uh, not necessarily in bondage, but they're under somebody else's rule. They're still free to worship. But they don't have the independence. They don't have all of the blessing of God in their lives that they experienced when they first went into the promised land and were following God. And so here they're saying, yeah, you say you love us, but how have you loved us? And they're comparing what their expectations of what they want their life to be uh, to what their current situation is. So in many ways, they basically abandoned God and they didn't respond to God's love in the right way. They keep questioning God's love. So I want to show you three ways that they actually despise God's love or defile the love of God or had the wrong response to God's love to them and really didn't think much of it and, and what we can learn from it. So first, they despise God's name and they did not give him the honor that he deserves. They despise God's name. In verse six, if you look down that far, it says, a son honoreth his father. This is God talking to them and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where's my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? O priests that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? So the prophet Malachi here says, you've despised God's name, and they question right away, how have we despised God's name? He goes on in verse 7, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? 
And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? So they look at the offerings, and they say, well, we haven't defiled your name. We're still doing what you asked us to do. We're still following through with the sacrifices. We're doing all of the rituals that we're supposed to, that are commanded in the law. And God says, well, are you? He says, you may be doing the sacrifices. You may be coming to worship, but you're offering subpar, substandard offerings. Now, Jehovah is described in scripture as the father of Israel. And this, this speaks of a very close and precious relationship that they have, but it also comes with obligations and responsibilities because a covenant works two ways. Now, God had chosen them as his people as an unconditional covenant, and yet God's blessing was conditional upon them obeying him. And so they have a responsibility to God as their father to obey him, to love him, to show that they love him through their obedience. And worship was one of the things that he commanded their obedience in. And here, even though they're going through the ritual, they're not following the principle or the spirit of the law. And he says, you, you really don't respect me. You don't honor me at all. You've despised my name. You go through these things because I told you to, but you have no heart in it. There's no desire for me or to please me. You're just doing them because you think that makes you a better person or you think that earns favor with God in doing these things. And he says, you've defiled me and that the sacrifices are subpar. You don't meet the standard of a perfect lamb without blemish. You bring the weak, the sickly, and he mentions the blind specifically in verse, six, verse seven. He says, you have made the altar of the Lord contemptible or the table of the Lord contemptible. I'm sorry, in verse eight, he says, you offer the blind. And he says, is it not evil? The sacrifices they were supposed to bring to the Lord were supposed to be perfect. And so they had this aura of superiority because they were God's chosen people. And yet they were inferior in their worship. They despised the name of God and they did not give him the honor that was due to him. And in fact, when you get down to verse eight, um, he says, in the middle of verse eight, okay, here's these sick and weakly and blind offerings that you're bringing. What if you offered them to the governor? And he's talking about the governor of Persia that rules over them at this time. He says, what if you offered them to the governor? Would he accept them? Are these offerings good enough for a human ruler? And yet you bring them to the temple and offer them to a holy God and expect that it's good enough. And so he says, you've despised my name. You don't have any honor for me because you don't care what I really desire. You just do what you think is okay and what's acceptable. Now, the, the lesson we learned from this is about our worship. And we have to question ourselves. Okay, well, God loves us. We know that. The Bible says that. We saw how he demonstrated that in salvation and sanctification, and even in his chastisement and how he seals us for the future, for the kingdom. And yet we don't grasp, I think, the depth of God's love for us because we respond to it much like Israel does. When it comes to our worship, we don't worship at the temple. We don't offer sacrifices as far as animals are concerned. But when God asked Israel to offer sacrifices in worship, he wanted the best. And we often, as believers, come to God and we do not give him our best. Now, we may say, no, no, we, we come to church every Sunday 
we, we may even come on Wednesday night. We pray three times a day. We make sure we thank God for the food. We read our Bible. We have devotions. We do all these things that we're supposed to do. I'm giving God my best. And yet, is it our best? The question is not so much what we do on Sunday and Wednesday in church. The question is what we do the rest of the time when we're not in church. Because as believers, 1 Corinthians 6 says, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Spirit lives in us. His presence is always there. We have become the temple of God in our person. And therefore, it's not just on Sundays that we worship. It's every single day that we're alive, that we get up, that we walk and breathe and eat and talk. We're worshiping God because his spirit is there with us all the time. And when we, have, when we evaluate our worship, it's not so much about are we doing the right things on Sunday and Wednesday? It's how are we living all the time? Does our worship, the worship of our life, meet that standard of holiness that God has asked us to give him? Our approach to worship sometimes is very casual and very nonchalant. And we kind of gear up ourselves and get ready for Sundays and Okay, this is, this is where we have to be spiritual. And yet God wants that to be our lives all the time. So it's not about the worship that we give on Sunday. We become just like Israel in that we despise God's name because we live exactly the way we want to every other day of the week. And yet then we come and try to give him this offering of worship on Sundays. And God says, that kind of worship is just exactly like the Israelites bringing sick and weakly sheep to him. He doesn't want that kind of worship. He wants the best that we have to offer. Our response to God's love should be that we give him true worship all the time in spirit and in truth. That our heart is actually the altar of our offering to God 24 hours a day where our heart then is offering to God the worship that is due his name, and we respect him for who he is, and we love him because he's shown his love to us. And if we value his love and sacrifice that he's demonstrated to us, how should we show that to him in return? I mean, is, not, is it not reasonable? And Romans 12 says this. It's, not, it's reasonable for us to give him our lives, to offer him our top-level worship all the time, that perfection and holiness that he wants to perfect in us and to create in us, that we're working and letting him do his work toward that goal all the time? Or do we set up ourselves on Sunday so we can perform what we're supposed to perform and then kind of, okay, I can relax the rest of the week? And that's what Israel was doing. And God says, as they did that, they offered him not their best, just whatever they had left over, that they defiled his name in doing so. They, they failed to give him the honor that he was due. God deserves our best all the time as believers because all the time we are in worship to him. And God wants our best worship. He wants us to worship in the beauty of holiness. First Chronicles 16 and Psalm 96 both say that. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's the best. That's the unblemished worship. And so it's not about what we think God wants or what we want to give to God is what does God desire from us? 
and it's our lives, and then how do we live those lives every day? And because of God's love, God deserves the best that we can give him all the time, every day. Now, the second way they, they um, rejected, in, in a sense, God's love is that they departed from God's way. First, they despised his name. Second, they departed from God's way. In verse 7 of Malachi chapter 2, turn over one chapter. And in verse 7, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now he's talking specifically here to the priests, the religious leaders of Israel. And he says, as priest, you should understand all of this. You should know the law. You should get, understand how this is all supposed to be carried out, what worship is all about, because you are set aside to do that specifically without being distracted by anything else. So you should understand all of this. And in verse 8, he says, but you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. The priests at this time were, to put it simply, corrupt. Okay, They tried to buy the priesthood. They tried to gain it by favors and by politics. And then once they got in there, they used the priesthood to benefit themselves not to help people, not to worship God. It was to benefit themselves. And all through the major and minor prophets, the prophets condemned especially the priests and the religious leaders of Israel because they had corrupted this system of worship and system of religion that God had established so much through the law that it was all about them. It was all about their gain, and they didn't care who they stepped on in the process to gain for themselves through it. And so they had basically allowed people to come in and offer these weekly and sickly offerings, the less than the standard that God demanded. And on the side, they would accept payments for themselves so that these offerings would be able to be sacrificed and offered in the temple. So we have a completely corrupt and unfaithful people in the priesthood of Israel. In fact, they were probably the most corrupt people in the nation. And God says um, in verse 8, he says, you've departed out of the way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. They led other people astray. <clears throat> and he says, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I made you contemptible and base before all the people. So these religious leaders and the priests that were supposed to be the epitome of the example for the people to follow in worship and in living, the people despised them because the people saw the corruption. They knew how corrupt the priests were. And so they didn't hold the priests up as an authority in religious things. They basically looked at them as corrupt politicians who were in it for themselves. And so they had no respect for them. And because they had no respect for the people, therefore they had no respect for the office, which translated into no respect for the worship and therefore they despise the name of God. And so it all comes down to the leadership, but they had departed from God's way. They didn't care what really God wanted and what God said. He says, you've departed from my way. You should know all this, but you don't live by it. Now the priests 
basically were the only ones that could read the, the law. Many of the people couldn't read. And they were the ones that explained it and that taught it to the people. And so God says, you of all people should know this and should be able to live by it. And yet you don't. Now, here's the point for us. We should know the Bible. We all have the Bible available to us. The only reason we don't know what the Bible says is because we don't take time to read it and study it. And we can't rely on other people to give us all of our spiritual benefit and all of our understanding of Scripture and us not read it ourselves. We can't establish a relationship with God and have the right worship before God by relying on other people to do it for us. And then when the leaders, when the pastors and the leaders in the church are wrong or if they're corrupt or if the church is misplaced or in their doctrine or practice, we can use that as an excuse to say, well, look at, look at how bad it is, and so therefore I'm just going to throw the whole thing out. It's not worth it. And that's basically where the people of Israel were. It's not worth it. Everybody is so corrupt up there, it's not even worth trying anymore. And so we use the leadership as an excuse. And this is a condemnation of the leadership as well, of churches. Because if you preach one thing in the pulpit and then live a completely different way outside of the pulpit, you're a big hypocrite and you're as guilty as these priests were. If someone, and we've talked about the elders in the church, but if a teacher or an elder comes into the church and they use that position and that authority to gain for themselves, whether it be prestige or position or money or whatever, then they fall into this category that these corrupt priests were in. Because they've used the position and the authority that God has given them to promote themselves, to gain for themselves, to profit themselves. And God says, that's a complete departure from what I've actually taught you. The law is based on two basic principles, Christ said. Love God first with all your heart. And if you love God, then you'll love other people. And you'll always be looking out for what's best for them. And the priests were looking out what's best for me. And so they completely abandoned, even though they thought they were keeping the law in the performance of these rituals, they had abandoned the principles of love and justice and mercy in God's eyes. And so they've departed from the way. In fact, it gets so bad in Malachi chapter 3, if you go down to verse 13, I'm sorry, it's in Matthew, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, he says, and this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth, receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. What had happened is the priests had corrupted the system so much that, as I mentioned before, they were allowing people to bring weak and sickly animals for the offerings. Now, part of the priests' um, living was gained, their food was gained from the offerings. And so when people brought these sickly sheep and sickly oxen and sickly animals, the priests couldn't eat them. And so they were losing out on food. So the very corrupt system that they actually created to gain for themselves was robbing them of the very blessings that God had intended them through this system of worship. And so it's ironic that God says, you come to the altar 
in verse 13, and you're crying and you're weeping to me because you don't have what you need. You've been um, kind of left out in the cold here as far as being supported, and yet you created the very system that allowed this. And he says, I'm not going to listen to it. And so God condemns them because they've ignored the path that God laid out for them. In fact, if you go back to verse 2, he, he basically compares them and everything that they had made of their lives to dung. He says, I'm going to smear dung on you, on your reputation, because that's what you've made of this. It's a big waste heap. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? See, this is God again condemning them. And he says, What have we spoken against you? And in verse 14 and chapter 3 says, You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? He's basically telling the leaders and the people of Israel that they come to God and they say, You know what? It's not worth it to serve God. It's not worth it to worship the way God wants us to. And the question is, why? And God says, here's why. Because you've done it to gain for yourself. And you didn't get what you wanted out of it. And so you said, it's not worth it. And we approach Christianity that way a lot of times, I think. Because we approach the Christian life and God's purpose in the Christian life is to make our lives better for us to make us happier, to make us more wealthy, to make us more secure in our health and our wealth and our, our, all the things that we have. And when God calls us to go through suffering, we become just like these priests and we say, you know what, it's not worth it. It, it is ironic that this very situation that the priest created was robbing them of the blessing that God wanted to give them. And as we look at churches and as we look at politics even, the leaders that we have in churches, the system of religion or the system of government that God has ordained, people are trying to gain for themselves through it. And they look at that system and they say, well, we're not getting out of it what we want. And it's not even worth it anymore. And especially in our churches, people are going to church and they say, well, I put my time in. I've said my prayers. I've read my Bible. And what do I have to show for it? I'm in debt. My house is falling apart. My car doesn't run. I have no friends. What good is it to follow God if it doesn't benefit me? And that's exactly what these priests are saying. And many times Christians approach Christianity the same way. What benefit is it to us if we don't gain from it? And yet the purpose of salvation was not to give us gain and profit. The purpose of our salvation was to glorify God. See, we don't love God if we think Christianity is all about me. We don't love God if we don't live like every single moment of our life, we are completely dependent upon him and know that he has and will provide us everything. We don't love God truly if we don't worship in our spirit as if God has truly delivered us from the worst suffering possible to find the greatest joy in him. We don't desire God because he doesn't give us what we desire. And yet Psalm 34 says he will give us the desires of our heart, but first we have to delight in him. These people didn't delight in God. And there's so many Christians who want the Christian life according to their own terms. They have left God's way of holiness. They have left God's prescribed way of worship. 
and they do whatever seems best to them. They keep God as a component of their life, but not as the life that they live. God is added to their life, but doesn't become their life. And what we're producing in life is not pleasing to God. It's rather a pile of manure, basically, in God's eyes, that we think is worth something that we accumulate to ourselves, and God says it's going to be carried away. It's not worth a thing. And it's, is it any wonder that there's so many Christians who are frustrated in their lives and frustrated in having a close relationship with God and knowing him in an intimate way when we choose to live in the toilet, literally, of the world, accumulating manure to ourselves and then complaining to God because we didn't get everything that we wanted. There's too many people who have made churches and Christ, I'm sorry, who have made Christianity and following Christ about personal gain. That's what Christ or God condemns the priests here for and the people of Israel. They were God's people, so God owed them something. And God says, no, you've departed from my way. My way. My way is to love me first, to walk in holiness. And I'll give you the blessing. But they had gotten so comfortable with the gift, they didn't want the giver anymore. See, one of the things we have to remember is that when it comes to God's way, we can't pick and choose what we decide to obey. We have to obey all of God's law. Now, we're not bound under the law of Moses as believers in the New Testament. We don't have to go through the rituals and the sacrifices, but the principle still holds true. God is our God. God loves us. He's given us everything from his hand, and he wants us to honor him and to obey him. He wants us to give our lives to serve him. That's the least we could do. And yet we want to look at his word and say, well, yeah, that one's okay. And that part's okay. And this chapter's okay. And this part of scripture, I don't understand that well. So I'm just going to skip over that. And this part of scripture really doesn't fit in with I, what I like and what I think. So we're not going to even try to deal with that one. And so we approach scripture like we would approach a buffet. We look at all that's out there and we go, well, I'll take some of that, some of that, some of that, some of that, and I'll leave the rest because I don't like it. And literally, we abandon God's way by doing that because we can't pick and choose what parts and what principles of scripture that we have to obey. We either accept it all as God's authority in our life or we have not accepted God's authority in our life. We need to be like the prodigal son rather than the Israelites. The prodigal son... When Christ taught about this man, this parable, he said he basically took everything, all the blessings from his father, went and wasted them on himself. That's a picture of us. And he got so desperate, he realized that everything he had, all the blessings were gone. He had, he had squandered them. And because of that, he realized his guilt. And so in his mind, he's thinking, if I can crawl back to my father and ask for forgiveness, if I can just come and if he would just be willing to hire me as a servant, a slave, at least I'd have some place to sleep and some food to eat. That's all I need. And so I'm going to crawl back and I'm going to beg him to, to bring me back, not as a son, just as a servant. And that's where we are. As Christians, or before we become Christians, that's where we have to get 
in order to receive the salvation of God, where we realize we are worthless. We've wasted all the blessings God's given us. We haven't given him any of the glory. And we crawl back to him and say, God, I'm not worthy to be part of your family. All I need to be, all I want is just to be a servant. And then God runs out with his arms wide open and embraces us as his son. And he puts on us white robes and he kills the fatted calf and he celebrates and all of heaven celebrates because one lost person has come back to Christ. And yet we're not worthy to be in that place. But God does it because he loves us. And then we want to define our lives before God and say, God, I want it to be this way. I want it to be this way. I want it to be this way. How come you're not giving it to me? See, we don't appreciate God's love. God's love deserves our absolute obedience. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? If we call Christ Lord, we need to obey him. If we call God our Father, we need to respect him and obey him. He said in John 14, this is Christ talking, if you love me, keep my commandments. And in 1 John, the apostle John obviously got this message because he re repeats this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. And he says, if you love me or if you love God, then you'll obey him. And he says in 1 John 5, verse 3, he says, God's commands are not grievous or burdensome to those people who really love God. So what God requires of us really is easy. It's not that big of a problem. It's not a huge burden that we have to bear. And yet we're not even willing to do that. Because we think it's all about us. We think, well, I deserve this because I'm a Christian. We think we can define our own lives. We can tell God what it's supposed to be like in our life and all the things that we want. He's going to be there for us. And yet we forget he's the master, we're the servant. And we've departed from God's way. But God's love deserves our obedience. That's what our response should be. Lord, whatever you say, whatever you ask, it's fine with me. So they despised his name. They departed from his way. And finally, they defrauded his treasury. They stole from God. And very quickly in chapter 3 of Malachi, verse 8, he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But ye say, here's their response, Wherein have we robbed thee? And God says, In tithes and offerings. In verse 9, Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. They robbed God in, in their money. Basically, they took their money as their own. And God specifically says, well, you, you stop bringing in the tithes and offerings. You haven't fulfilled all of the tithes and offerings. And he goes in verse 10, he says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out you a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So the people immediately challenge God and say, have we robbed you? We've put money in the offering. And he says, you haven't brought it all. You haven't done what I've asked you to do. You may think you've fulfilled your tithe, but you haven't brought it all with the right heart. He said, my promise to you is that if you were faithful in bringing those tithes and offerings, not just the tithes, but he says tithes and offerings, 
If you were faithful in doing that, then I would pour out the blessings of heaven so you couldn't even hold them all. And yet you're so concerned about your money that you can't even do the minimum required. Now, in the law of Moses, God set up a plan for the Levites, again, to be supported through tithes of, of that were brought into the temple. And because the people weren't tithing, because the government was so, because the, the priests were so corrupt, the priests didn't have money. And so they would devise other ways of getting money from the people and they would use them or they would charge them for things that, or they would sell things in the temple. So there's all different ways that they had corrupted the worship in order to gain money because the people weren't bringing the tithes. And so it went both ways. God had a plan for his people, and if they followed it, then everybody would have what they need and everybody would be blessed. And here, the Levites and the priests were suffering. Now, they perpetuated the system that caused people not to give, but they were suffering, and the people were suffering. And it was all because people were focused on my money, not God's money. God's plan for Israel was that the people through tithes support the temple, the priests, the worship in the temple. God's plan for the New Testament is that through the offerings of God's people, it supports the church, the ministry of the church, and the ministers in it. And when the people fail to do that, the ministers suffer. But people often fail because they see the corruption in leadership and they don't want to support that. But there's no excuse. God says there's no excuse. I've commanded it. You need to do it. It's not your money. It's my money. And you're holding back. And it's not about this giving, this idea of giving or supporting the ministry and supporting the priests in the Old Testament. It's not just about the upkeep and the support of the ministry. It's because our giving is a, is a hallmark, it's a touchstone of what our heart is toward God. It shows our love for God. If God has given us all things freely from his hand, should we not be willing to do the same for him? To give everything back to him, it belongs to him in the first place. And so this giving, this what he's talking about here, he says, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. This is a test of our love for God. Think of the rich young ruler. He wanted eternal life very badly. He came to Jesus and says, what do, I, what do I need to do? And Jesus said, well, you need to love God. You need to love others. You need to follow the law. And the rich young ruler said, well, I've done all that. From my youth up, I'm perfect in that. And Jesus didn't challenge him on that. And he said, okay, then all that's left then is for you to sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. And then the rich young ruler went away sad because his money was more important than God. Now, some people might argue, well, the tithe, we're in the, the era of grace in the New Testament. Tithing isn't necessarily mandatory. And I would agree with them in that principle as far as the policy is concerned. But most people who would argue against the tithe will argue that because they don't want to give 10%, they want to give less. My point is, if God has overflowed his love to us in abundance of grace in salvation, why do we have to limit our giving to 
God has given us freely. Can't we give to him freely? But here's the attitude. It shows an attitude in our restrictive giving, in our holding back and controlling and protecting ourselves. It shows an attitude that is alien to the grace of God toward us. We don't understand God's grace. We don't understand love. So we have to keep for ourselves because love gives freely. And if we loved God, if we responded to God's love in the right way, it'd be like, Lord, there's nothing. I'm going to hold back from you. I'm going to give it all. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it because I know as soon as I give it away, you're going to give me more to be able to give away so I can give more. And then you're going to give me more to give away more. And that's what God is saying here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. He's saying, we're going to fulfill the law, first of all, so that people are provided for. And then he says, improve me, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And we don't believe that as Christians demonstrated by how we give. God will not bless me. God cannot give me more than I already have. I don't believe God will pour out the blessing as he said. And so therefore I have to protect what I have. That's exactly where Israel was. And that's how we respond to God's love. It's all about me. I'm going to keep it for myself. God, thanks so much. Again, let me remind you of 1 John 5, 3. Apostle John reminds us that his commands are not grievous or burdensome to us. And if we truly love God in response to his love for us, giving would not be a problem. Our money would not be a problem. In fact, to obey God in generous, sacrificial, obedient giving pays dividends as part of our willing, joyful worship of God. And that's God's promise to us. We've studied this here at Bunker Hill before about how we should give. We are to give freely. We are to give abundantly out of our substance, not the extra, out of our substance, so that God can bless us so we can bless others more. And the reason we have so little blessing in the church of God as a whole is because people are holding on to the things that they're supposed to be using to bless other people and support the ministry of God, and we're more concerned about protecting our own stuff than we are about other people. And unfortunately, we can't manipulate God and God's ways to get out of it what we want. And just like the priests, the very things that we try to manipulate and hold on to are the very things that bring us down and rob us of the blessing that God wants to give us. God says, test me in this and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. How much do we love God and how we give? Malachi's prophecy began with the most important statement that God ever made to the people of Israel and the most important statement that God has ever made in the course of history to mankind. He says, I have loved you. And we've seen how God loves us. We see every day how God loves us. And it wasn't because they earned it. It wasn't because they deserved it. God chose them and loved them and blessed them because of his great mercy. And God has saved us, and he's blessed us, and he's promised us a home in heaven because of his great mercy. We didn't earn it. And God is saying to every believer now, 
I have loved you. I have shown my love to you in so many different ways. And yet you just take it for granted. You despise my name. You depart from my law. You defraud me in your giving. That's just three examples. If we read through the whole book of Malachi, there's several other accusations that God makes. But that's enough to challenge us with. Here's the challenge. Do we demonstrate our love to God and how we respond to his love? 1 John 4.19, we loved him, why? Because he first loved us. In John 14.15, again, Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So do we demonstrate our love for God? He's demonstrated his love to us, there's no question. But when it comes to us, do we demonstrate our love for God in how we honor him? How we lift up his name in our worship, in our lives? Do we honor him and how we obey him in the things that he wants to do in our lives and the, and the ways he wants us to walk and live? Do we honor him and how we give, not just in church, but willing to give to help other people freely? How do we respond to God's love? When we respond in obedience, as God wants us to, then there's no fear in our lives of falling short in our worship. Now, we can say, well, I could never reach that level of worship and holiness, perfect holiness that God wants. God doesn't want perfectness from us because he knows we can't achieve it. What he wants is a whole heart that's dedicated to him, that's dedicated to serving him. So we have no fear of falling short in our worship. We have no fear in falling short in our, our obedience, although we do, and yet God still stands with open arms ready to forgive us as soon as we come back to him. And we have no fear about not giving God enough. And I think that's a fear that too many Christians don't have because it's a fear more of what we're going to miss, what we won't have, rather than a fear of giving God too much. So God has shown his love to us. The question for you is how do we show our love for God? How do we respond to his love? Do we respond in obedience with a joyful heart or are we like Israel at this point in their history, completely rebellious, selfish, and all about me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have challenged us with your truth today. And Lord, it's easy to accuse and point fingers at other people. As we read about Israel, we see the corruption. And we have no problems talking about that. And it is so many demonstrations in our own lives of how we fail you each day, of wrong attitudes and pride and selfishness and even corruption that we try to manipulate people and things in our lives to get what we want. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our sin. I pray that you would show us how pure, how overwhelming your love is to us again, so that we get a full appreciation of it, that we might give back to you 
the love that we could never match, but that all that we can pour out to you, as limited as it may be. Lord, I pray that you would be acceptable in our sight, that we would truly delight in you, and that we would appreciate your love so that our response to you is absolute obedience and wonder and worship. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I hope God blesses you this week. I hope he's given you something to think about. And may you let him continue to work in your lives. Take care. We'll see you soon. God bless. Bye.